session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulaqui, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook. To get updates on the show, or to just topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes, again, uh, and Spotify. Uh, studio number 310-441-0555. Later on in the show, I'm going to share some wise words from a wise man, but first we'll get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time. This is a very powerful book that I've read parts of, but actually haven't read it cover to cover before. I know it includes two sections, but it's The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. I'll be talking about that on the show Monday next week. The book of the week from last week that I'm talking about today, there was no show Monday, that's why I'm talking about on the show on Wednesday, is Language at the Speed of Sight by Mark Seidenberg. Language at the Speed of Sight, How We Read, Why So Many Can't, and What Can Be Done About It. Uh, as I mentioned last week, it was interesting to read a book about reading. It was kind of a meta type of experience. And it's something that we do, or most of us, do without really understanding how we do it, which is really true of most actions we take. If you ride a bike, you know how to ride the bike. You have that procedural memory of, of how to do it, but you don't really know what's happening in all your muscles, body movements. You don't know what's happening in your brain, and you don't need to know what's going on to actually do it. And that's true of most actions we take. We don't know. Uh, but it can be important to study and understand what is going on, especially when we're talking about something as important as reading, which he discusses in the book, to understand what, how it happens, why it goes wrong, why it can be hard for some people to, to do it or to do it well, and then also what can we do about it, which is part of the title, because that is very important. Uh, so for me, I, I enjoyed reading a book on reading. It was harder to get through than I thought, which is interesting. It was harder to read a book on reading. It was quite long uh, as far as the pages go, so I think I was almost fooled into thinking that it was 300 pages, but it was probably much more than that. But anyway, packed with a lot of information, including the neuroscience of reading, which I won't get into in detail. It's hard to get into, and especially over the air, hard to convey it, but it does help us understand it better. So he talks about the technologies, things like fMRI, which can help us understand what's going on in the brain while we read and also when we have struggles reading. So you can check that out if you're more interested in the book. I won't touch on that too much, but we'll share some of the insights I got from the book. So to begin with, reading is a very valuable skill that we have. It can almost go without saying, but it's true. And especially to function in today's society, it's very important that we 
know how to read, know how to read well, to be able to communicate, to be able to learn. It's a big part of our life or life in society. And he shares how as much as it's this very important thing, in some ways it's not as natural as speaking and it's newer than speaking. So spoken languages or written languages have been around just maybe a few thousand years. And he talks about the history of writing and how that developed, why it might have developed. It could have been in some ways to convey things about trade. That seems to be one of the reasons they were creating symbols because that's really what um, writing is. Writing is essentially symbols to um, detect or to express words. So you have a symbol for fish or wheat and that could tell the people they were trading those things but of course this evolved into not just pictures let's say to a pictograph a picture of something to determine or delineate you're talking about something into the words that we now have which really have no connection if I look at the word book for example it doesn't actually have anything within the word the way it looks that is related to a book so it's become now a symbol but very different from a picture symbol so he gets into the the history of writing and of course some of it we can't know very well because it's from thousands of years ago and it's based on what's been preserved but we get some ideas of how writing has developed and the different ways writing has developed in, in different countries but but exactly that it's something that we've invented uh, to to be able to have permanent record of things that are being said and ways that can be expressed and shared in different ways that can't happen with just spoken language alone. But so spoken language we can see as even more natural or something that we evolved to do uh, from millennia, but reading, of course writing and then reading, is something newer. But there's interesting differences and he talks about some of these distinctions between uh, reading and speaking. One that was interesting that I didn't quite think of until he expressed it in this way is that when someone's speaking to you, the speaker determines how fast information is being conveyed or expressed. So right now when I'm talking, uh, I get to choose the speed that I'm expressing. Now, for those of you listening on the podcast, and I know even some of my friends, um, you might be listening at 1.5 or 2 speed, so you get to determine in some ways. So there are some ways now with technology that when you're listening to recorded speech, you can have some impact on it, but still it's a little bit different than written language. But so I get to pick, the speaker gets to choose the pace of the expression, whereas in reading, the reader gets to choose. So if I'm reading a book, I, I can choose how fast I'm reading, the pace, if I want to go back things like that. It gives you a different type of authority to the one who's taking in the information or trying to um, listen, if you even want to call reading the taking in, in that way of listening to the words, you're doing it in a different way, which is quite interesting. Um, he also got into the way the eyes work and how we look at reading and the limitations that we can understand on the eyes and also the brain, which relates to something that I hear a lot about when I read a book a week and people hear about that is, oh, you must read so fast, or do you do speed reading? And so I did want to mention that he got into the, the speed reading and the history of it and also um, and some science about it, about the limitations. And really the bottom line is there's no such thing as speed reading without losing comprehension. So you could read a book really fast as far as 
um, you know, skim it, or if it's a you know different type of material, we do what we call skimming, or we ha try different ways of doing it. But really, you will always have a reduction in your comprehension of what was there. You'll get the gist, but you won't get the details. And so, uh, reading is one of those things that's quite interesting. Usually, people they think they are better than average at most things so if you say how good are you at driving most people will say they're better at average better than average if you ask professors compared to other professors uh, i forgot what the questions were but i'm sure they've done lots of different things like how hard do you think you work or good your research is or something like that and they think of themselves as above average compared to their peers and of course uh, most people can't be above average that's how statistics work is that half people are above average and half are going to be below but we see that in a lot of different traits people tend to see themselves more positively than they probably actually are and in the grand scale we know that overall there's this positive tendency if some most people are saying they're above average but with reading we tend to see the opposite people think that others do it better than them which is kind of surprising and might seem strange uh, the, the reason i think that's true is because reading is something that feels like it goes slow and in a way it does you might sit down and read for like 20 minutes and especially if you don't read that often or even if you do it can feel like quite a bit of time and you might read six seven pages depending on the book or let's say 10 pages and that doesn't feel like a whole lot and there could be the sense that there must be a faster way to do this which is understandable and sometimes i have that experience too um, as i said with this book the pages felt very long so even of course a page is not the same thing based on the length and the number of words and also how um, the depth of the work and how intense it is that's going to have a lot of impact on how fast you read but nonetheless with this book i would sometimes read for what felt like a while and it would only be two three pages or four pages and so it felt very slow so there seems to be this tendency to think there must be a faster way to do it and that other people are doing it faster than you and so i get a lot of messages like that you must read so fast you must be reading these books so fast and the truth is i don't think that i am there was actually a part of the book where it, it said here's like an example of this text, this page from this book from, I think it was Maria Montessori, and it should take about a minute and a few seconds. And I think I did it in about that time. I, I timed myself just out of curiosity. And my reading rate was about what he said is average um, for the reading speed. I think it might have been slightly above, and I can't even remember actually if it was a little bit, but basically at the average rate. So I'm not reading faster uh, than most people. Um, it does take some endurance, which I think I've built up from reading every week, and, and there's ways that I can read for longer periods of time that I used to, so kind of like the endurance you might gain in exercise, where you can't sprint much longer period of time than other people, but you might be able to build the endurance to do more sprints throughout the day. So I, I probably can have more of that, but I'm actually not really speed reading. So beware of people who sell you speed reading techniques. And there's still so many of them. He talked about them in the book, some of the companies that made a lot of money. And there's even some guy that he tried to, he set the Guinness Book of World Records for fastest reading or something, which to me doesn't even make sense, because what does that mean? I can just, I'm holding the book in my hand. I can just flip through the page and said I read it. But obviously retention and comprehension is what we're thinking about if we say actually reading. But anyway, there's a lot of people that will sell you lots of things that aren't helpful and true and try to fool you and tap into your magical thinking 
reading or um, wishes you have, like I wish I can just read fast and get through books. It's a desire most people have. I wish I could just read more and get through books more quickly. So if someone tells you, here's a way to make you read 10 times faster, of course, it's going to sound very appealing and a lot of people listen and then a lot of people buy into it. But the research is pretty clear that you can't do speed reading. If there's something that improves your speed and comprehension, it's probably going to be very subtle or mild and take some time. Like a lot of things in life, we're looking for quick fixes, but the quick fixes are usually fake and people trying to take your money more than actually help you. So I thought that was interesting, and I've read some research on that before that speed reading was not uh, really something you could do, but hearing him talk about the science I, I thought was quite interesting. Now we're getting close to commercial break and there's a lot more information in the book that I do want to get into. So I'll, I'll share more about the book after the break. Of course you can call in, not about the book, um, but I'll be taking calls later on the show. But let's go to commercial break again. The book is Language at the Speed of Sight by Mark Seidenberg. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, Language at the Speed of Sight by Mark Seidenberg, how we read, why so many can't, and what can be done about it. And so as I was talking before the break, different aspects of reading and how it could be different from speaking, and then, you know, when we think about reading in a way, a child has, of course, been exposed to spoken language and can speak for a few years before they start to read. And reading, in a way, it's like learning a new language. Of course, if we're, let's say, an English speaker, you're reading in English, but it's still a new way of expressing language that has to be learned. And so a lot of kids do naturally learn or pick it up just based on being in a traditional setting at home and traditional setting at school, let's say, but not everyone does. And there are big chapters in the book and a lot of information dedicated to things like dyslexia, when people have trouble reading, which uh, dyslexia, I've heard even some people say, is that a real thing? And as he expresses, it's very real, but of course, with something like an issue um, with challenges to reading, it can be very hard to define and describe, and people can differ on their definitions. Sometimes it's uh, reading comprehension or the ability to read that's lower than would be expected based on someone's IQ, but defining all of those things can be challenging. But he expresses issues related to dyslexia, having trouble reading, challenges reading. And one of the issues that seems to be there is in phonology or hearing words. And even as I say phonology, I'm not sure if I'm saying that word exactly right, um, which is kind of ironic based on the actual word in the, the, this book. But uh, um, that there's issues in hearing the words in some ways. And so when we read, although we think we're reading and it's in our head, in some ways we are hearing the words too. Now, sometimes it's thought that we're saying the words in necessarily, and sometimes there is some sub-vocalizations, like vo vocalizations you're saying it, but really you hear the words even in your head in a way. So for example, he had an, uh, something in the book where it said, permit. So I can say, um, we had to get a permit, which is different than I permit you to do something. Same spelling, um, so it looks the same, 
But based on how it's positioned in the sentence and the form it has or the meaning it has, we will hear it differently in our head. So when I was reading that part of the book, I did recognize that I was saying, uh, you know, we had to get a permit to do the da da da, or uh, we permit you to do this. And it has the same spelling, but different sound. So essentially we are hearing, and there is a phonological aspect to reading. And you maybe even heard, I remember when I was, I think a teenager, there was something called hooked on phonics. I think it was something that was um, sold on TV to help with reading. So it was about phonics, like the sounds that get uh, become words and the way we read and to help children using that and so his uh, argument based on the research is that it's not just about is it phonics or just about reading the words and knowing the words it, there's some of both but that the phonics seem very important and you've probably seen this when you work with kids kind of the common way at times you'll look at reading is they say like you'll say bat b-a-t b-a-t and then try to combine those now What's interesting is that although we think if you combine those, you make the word bat, if you combine those sounds, you don't really make the word bat completely. It's a little bit more complex than that, but it does get at the sounds that the letters make and combining them to make words, which is essentially how language gets translated or written language gets translated into what we hear or what we speak. And so he says that the phonics are important, that the orthography or how the words look, of course, is important. You look at the words and you can, quote unquote, do sight reading. But to get to the semantic understanding, uh, you can sometimes go straight from the orthography to the semantics, but at times you need, and it's very important to have the phonology as well, the pronunciation and the sound is very important. So that's something that he talks about a lot in the book is the importance of phonics, of phonology in reading and how that at times is the issue for slow or skilled readers when you differentiate them or children who have dyslexia, it seems like the phonological pathway might be an issue that they need to sound or get help in sounding the words out. So that was interesting for me to see some of this understanding and research that comes um, from understanding reading and what we see and how even we read against something that we take for granted because it becomes so natural. And essentially, once we internalize the way that we read and we become more familiar and comfortable with it, the there is a lot of overlap that he talks about between the phonology and the orthography, that when you see it and you hear it almost at the same time, it becomes in a way simultaneous. And so when we look at the brain, it's like there's a lot of overlap in what's going on. So it's not like purely we hear it or purely we just see it. it. It seems like there is a lot of overlap and in some ways learning how to read involves getting good at that, that having that overlap that naturally you, you see the words and you hear them. And so the book has a lot of uh, demonstrations of that as well, of how we read. Now, the book, the first two thirds of it essentially are about how we read. Uh, and understanding that and why people can't or what's going on there. But then the last third is especially directed towards American educators. And so he, he shares early on in the book and then later again in this last part of the book how um, America is not doing very well when it comes to reading compared to other countries. And there are a few studies that look at and compare readers in different countries or different academic performance. And America doesn't do very well in reading or as well as we'd probably like. And he shares how there seems to be 
a disconnect between the science of reading and the educators, those who are teaching reading, to our children. And this disconnect between research in a field and the practitioners of the field is very common, unfortunately. You see this very often. Even in psychology, as a therapist, I know that even myself, unless you put effort, you don't really know or hear about the research that is being done in therapy, in psychology, psychiatry, that is very much involved with the work that you are doing as a therapist. There is a uh, a separation, a disconnect between academia and the practitioners. And it's really unfortunate because, of course, the whole goal of the, the research should be to help the understanding to then help people. And, of course, the practitioners are trying to help people in whatever field that they are. So the intentions are the same, but unfortunately there is a, a disconnect. I think at times it, it comes back to things like uh, believing you know better than the other side. So the scientists think they know better than the practitioners. The practitioners think we're the ones that are, you know, in the trenches dealing with the people and seeing how things work and don't work. So we know better than you in your ivory tower isolated from what's going on. So they don't think they need to hear what they have to say. So I think there's definitely some ego and hubris here that gets in the way, unfortunately, of actually the, the good information the helpful information being um, shared or disseminated into the people that are going to help and vice versa. The practitioners, of course, can inform the researchers by sharing experiences they've had, what they've seen works and doesn't work, which might help inform the research and vice versa. So you would hope there would be this healthy discourse and dialogue, but very often there isn't. And, and Mark Seidenberg in this book shares that it appears that this is what's happening with reading in the American education system. He does try to share that it's about the system in general, and he doesn't want to in any way attack teachers themselves. But I could see how if someone's a teacher reading this, they might not like it, or if you're in a school of education, you might not like it. Um, but he says try to temper that by saying that the system needs to change and there's good information that needs to be shared with the individuals who are teaching and, and teaching, first teaching the teachers and then those who are going to teach the children. But schools of education oftentimes, as is the case on, on college campuses, they can be physically and literally, um, you know, figuratively separated from other areas, which is usually the case. We don't see often a lot of interdisciplinary work and people work in isolation when usually most issues, especially social issues, there's a lot of overlap and it's not purely psychology or purely education or purely sociology. There's going to be a lot of different disciplines that will be necessary to help understand different types of issues and phenomenon, but um, we don't always see that communication happening. So in education, he cites that this is what we see with reading, where there are some almost like he didn't use the word dogma, but ways of teaching and understanding reading that have become kind of accepted as truth. And all this research that he talks about related to reading seems to not even be looked at or understood. So um, he really is pushing here in the end of the book to talk about how we need to integrate this research into how children read and, and that reading is so important because when children don't read and they become adults who don't read, that can really affect them. And, and he shared some statistics, and I don't have them off the top of my head, uh, of people who have challenges reading, and it's much more than you would think. 
it's definitely not just a few people. We sometimes have this understanding, and even I think I have thought this way too, that before, you know, hundreds, thousands of years, even just hundreds of years ago, most people were illiterate, but now everyone's basically literate. Everyone can read. But as, as he shares, it's not really the case that everyone can read, especially read well enough to uh, understand things and understand and comprehend more complex things or important things, even let's say things related to uh, science or politics or things that might affect their lives. And, and people, starting as children, we start to internalize certain views about ourselves. For example, if you have a hard time reading and you aren't given the support and tools to help overcome those challenges to reading, you start to think, I'm not a good reader, I'm not a good student, school is not for me, I'm not smart. All these types of things get pretty ingrained. And it can be heartbreaking at times. I've worked with children um, tutoring children with School on Wheels, for example, and not just about reading specifically, but you can see how a child at times already, once they're in, let's say, third or fourth grade, you get this sense they feel like, I'm just not good at school stuff. I'm just not going to get it. So you, you try to work with them or help them, but you can see that there's a lack of hope or belief in themselves. There's a a, a, a kind of hopelessness in that I just can't do this stuff so why should I even try which is really heartbreaking because usually it's not the case that they can't do it they definitely can with the right help and support and hard work but if they've already given up on themselves uh, that can be very hard to, to change that and to, to reinstill that belief and hope in themselves so I think it's very important that when we teach our children to read that we help them uh, the best ways that we can. And it seems like he is trying to argue in this book that we need the people who are doing the teaching to be aware of the science about reading that will help them teach in, in the best way, in the most effective ways. The theme of poverty also comes up related to education. In the United States, we see there are huge impacts on where you are born or how wealthy and the SCS, the socioeconomic status of your family, and the educational experience and outcomes that you have. It's undeniable when you look at the research how significant this is and to me how heartbreaking that is. Um, that in the United States, not every child does not get the same education. And that is something that I think is unacceptable, that we can't accept that some children, of course, through no fault of their own, oftentimes people blame poverty on the people who are poor, which itself um, is very much an oversimplification and unfair. But especially let the children, I think anyone, even if you believe people who are poor are to blame for being poor, we can, I hope, all agree that the children have no responsibility for that at all. And so I think every child does deserve to have a good and equal education to their peers, no matter where they're born, how wealthy or unwealthy their family is. But we don't see that in the United States. He even shared that in Finland, that's something that's a very important characteristic for them is that all children, no matter where they're born in the country, whoever they are, get the same quality education, which to me is kind of a no-brainer, something that should be um, very clear. And the fact that it's not the case is something that I would think and hope people are unhappy and upset about, but we don't see that strong of a reaction or it comes up, but we don't see a lot of movement towards that, something that to me should be completely unacceptable. Um, and so he does share that some people say poverty is the issue, and he doesn't say poverty is not the issue. 
I don't know if he downplayed it, he maybe did, but um, that poverty takes a long time and we should do, work on that. He definitely made that point to reduce poverty, make schooling more equal and fair for all citizens, no matter where they live and how rich or poor they are. But he also says there's things we can do in the meantime that would help in the reading process and that we should do all the things that we can. And, and I agree with that. It's not just let's wait that the, the, the gaps are not just about poverty, they probably are, but there's also gaps that all children might experience no matter where they're living because of the instruction they're getting and certain challenges they might face individually. And he's saying that if we implement more of the scientific research on reading, we can help those children. So I think he makes some good points about that. I hope that we never lose sight of um, the issue of poverty in this country, around the world, but in this country when it comes to education, it is heartbreaking to me that we have different um, educational opportunities based on children where they are born. To me, is completely unfair and something that we, we need to change and I hope change quickly as in working on it, even though I know it will take some time. But back to the, the book, it is quite interesting understanding how reading works in the brain, what we do, um, how we do it, something that we all take for granted, and how important it really is. It's a reminder of that. So I enjoyed learning more about reading than I, I knew before the book. And if you're interested in that, I hope you'll check out the book, Language at the Speed of Sight, How We Read, Why So Many Can't, and What Can Be Done About It by Mark Seidenberg. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, studio number 3104410555. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I wanted to share uh, some wise words from a wise man, and it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but uh, a wise man once said, I don't know. And the reason why this is so wise is that, of course, when we think of someone knowledgeable, when we think of someone who is wise, we think that they have all the answers. Or hopefully we're not that extreme, we think they have a lot of answers. But the problem with this mindset that we often have that a wise person knows everything, or if a person doesn't know something, it no longer makes them wise or smart or bright or brilliant, is that it opens the door for many people to share opinions as facts, to claim they know everything, or know everything about a certain topic or a certain area, and people are ready to listen to it and to take that in because we have this assumption that there are people that know everything or that know everything about something or some topics and what they're saying is the truth. And so we take in and look for those kinds of people and these people can become very popular and people will follow them and listen to them. I talked about it a few weeks ago that we have this tendency to not want to have to think about everything and to have someone do the thinking for us, do the hard part for us. So someone has studied something and they've thought about things and they're so brilliant and smart that they have the answers to everything. Now I know on this show I'm sharing my thoughts and views and at times there could be some of that and something I always try to be mindful of. Am I sharing about things I know? Am I presenting information as fact when it's more opinion or not so necessarily true? So there is a balance that you want to find between, of course, not stating things that are 
true uh, or saying things that are true when they're not necessarily true and you don't know. But also I know that if you say something clearly and with confidence that can have a, a greater impact. So it's finding that balance of how do you say something clearly, strongly, well, but without overstepping the limits of what it actually is. For example, saying that an opinion is a fact. Uh, but if you go online, especially now, people are looking for gurus and people that have all the answers. And I've watched some videos from people like this, especially recently, and I got this sense even I would buy into it at times, that the person would say things with so much confidence as fact that I would think, wow, they really know these things and they know all of these things and they must be right about this and right about the next thing and everything they're saying is true. And then even sometimes I would fact check some of the things they said so clearly as a fact established by the research and it wasn't always the case that sometimes it was not so clear or things that they had mentioned had now been contradicted by research. But they said it so clearly as fact and kept going on and built their argument with that research or whatever had been found in those conclusions and then got to some point and made their point as if that was also fact as well. So it's something we have to be careful about. The wise man once said, I don't know, because the wise man recognized that he, in this case, we usually say wise man, but it could be, of course, wise woman as well, recognizes that they don't know everything. And there's a lot they don't know. And the more they learn, the more they realize they don't know. And that's something I've especially experienced when I'm reading these books. Uh, of course, I've added to my knowledge and understanding of different topics and issues and things about the world. But when I'm reading, very often I get exposed to new areas of research, of knowledge, of um, perspectives that I wasn't even aware of before. And I realize how much more there is for me to learn and know. So the more I know, the, the more I realize I don't know and there is for me to learn. And, and that's, of course, hopefully the case with anyone. But so if you find yourself, even when you're listening to me, something I've talked about before, when we're listening to someone or when you're reading a book, and it's interesting because the book today that I talked about it was about reading, you should be having at some level a conversation with them. Now by conversation, I don't mean you talk to them and you expect them to talk back because they can't and hopefully you won't be hearing anything back from them, but that you're thinking about what they're saying, not as just taking it in as whole truth, but that you are trying to even challenge it, try to question it with a healthy skepticism. So it doesn't mean you think they're wrong and lying and everything they're saying is false, but you also don't go to the other extreme and accept that everything they're saying has to be true or is true because it's in a book. Even, you know, that can happen. We hear, we see something in a book, it makes it sound like it must be more right. If it's got to be in a book, then uh, must be something smart about it. Or someone posts a video and, well, if they're saying it so confidently, there must be something there. Or if it has, you know, this million number of views, there must be something, some truth to it. But we have to remember that throughout history, we've seen people, and of course, there's the cliche examples of Hitler and, and other people, but even smaller examples and cult leaders and various things of people who got followed uh, by people who people thought they were so right and smart and everything they said was true. And of course, now we see that they were wrong and manipulative and even we can say evil in some ways. And it was mostly and only about them and some evil plan or way of getting their own um, needs met or getting something they were seeking, not about 
something very true that they were saying. So this is the challenge of living in a moment. Yes, you can look back 100 years and think, how did people believe that guy or that woman? Um, and it's very easy with hindsight. But when you're in it, that's when we get caught up in these things. And that's why we do want to study history. As they say, if we you don't understand and know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Because when you look back, let's say, at the Holocaust, it's very easy to say, oh, look at that, and these evil people did evil things, and it's wrong, and let's move forward. But you do have to sit with the uneasy truth that maybe if I was in Germany during that time, I wouldn't have objected to what was going on. I would have been a supporter of what was happening. We'd, we'd like to think that would never be the case, and I'm not saying this about, of course, any individual, but even myself, I could like to think, of course, I wouldn't, and I would be outspoken, and I would uh, be against what was going on. But if the majority of people were okay with, at least okay in the sense they didn't object outwardly, then we have to wonder, well, why would I expect I would for sure be someone that would not? Again, this goes back to something I talked about in the last segment, how we see ourselves better than the average. I'm sure if you ask most people, the overwhelming majority would say that they would not accept what was going on and they would um, you know, be outspoken and say something or fight back or protect um, Jewish people or people who are being persecuted. But if the overwhelming majority think they wouldn't, but we know that in history that didn't happen, we see there's a mismatch. And so we have to accept that possibility that we could have been duped or we could have been unaware of what was going on. And so we have to have that humility. Even as a therapist, I know that a client can make me believe things that aren't at all true, even in a manipulative way. Of course, it's going to happen um, unconsciously or accidentally, and you are getting their perspective always, which is in a way a version of the truth. But even someone could come in and lie to you, and you might think you're good at detecting lies or telling when people are telling the truth or exaggerating. But we see that we really aren't as good as we think we are. And so the same thing goes for when we try to uh, look for people to be thought leaders and understand them. There could be this feeling that we can now trust them fully and believe in everything that they say and let them do the critical thinking. But we always want to take that step back. It feels good to be able to believe in something 100%. There is a comfort. We don't like uncertainty. We don't like having to question things that, okay, what if this person is wrong about this? When they say it with confidence and clearly and we feel like other things they've said make sense, it's a lot easier and more comforting to say, okay, this is the truth with a capital T and I can just believe in it and know that it's right and because they said it, it's right. But we have to take that uncomfortable truth with what's going on that this is their opinion it's important i want to understand it this person might even be very wise and knowledgeable but i want to be open to questioning what they're saying too and what you see is with a lot of people who gain this kind of popularity you see the types of groupthink and cult-like mentality where if you disagree with the leader people will attack you how dare you disagree with what that person is saying and it's really of course they're they think they're defending that person but they're defending themselves because now their sense of self is being challenged and questioned because they fully believe in this person and so if you take away that this person is as perfect as they think they are in their mind well it feels like the sky is falling and of course they're going to try to protect that at any costs and you get attacked kind of like a, a virus um 
that everyone will tell you, how dare you disagree? What are you thinking? And they become these strong proponents of whoever that person is. And another dynamic we want to look at, and this is something I've shared before, is that when you see someone sharing their ideas with you, and even, of course, I have to be aware of this as I'm talking, we always want to look at their intention. There are some people that are trying to manipulate to make money. There are some people that are uh, trying to manipulate for a bunch of different reasons. A lot of times people, they might not be selling a thing per se, and it's not just about the money, but they're selling themselves. They want to be um, get a certain level of attention or notoriety. It's feeding something within them. So when someone says something very confidently as if there's no other truth possible, we always want to ask ourselves, are they selling me a thing, something, or are they selling me themselves? And be aware of that. Because very often in today's day and age, especially with the internet where it's so easy to spread certain information and gain a certain type of notoriety, people are selling themselves. That I hold the answers, I know the truth, and I'm going to share it with you. All you have to do now is listen to me. Even you can feel like there's a way it's like lulling you to sleep. Just hush, hush, little baby. Just be relaxed. Listen to me, and I know all the truth, and I will guide you. All you have to do is listen to me, and your life will be easy. Your life will be good. You will always know you're doing the right thing. And it is very comforting to think of that. Even as I was saying it, it kind of sounded like a lullaby. I'm sure you could have been comforted by that feeling that someone could tell you, I know everything. I know all the answers. There's this need to idealize and have that sense of comfort in a way like our parents. When you're a child, you want to know and feel like your parents can protect you and take care of you no matter what. I think it's sometimes interesting that we know that when we have fears, they very often aren't very logical. But if you think of a child who's afraid there's a monster under his or her bed or a monster is around the corner, usually the monster they're imagining, their own parent in real life if, would have no way of defending against that monster. So we go to our mom or you go to your dad and you feel comforted. But really, if we look at what's going on, if that monster you're imagining was real, there's no way your parent would be able to actually defend against that monster unless you're imagining your parent in an idealized way. That when I'm in your arms, I'm so protected that nothing can harm me, that you can defeat any enemy, anything that's coming my way. And the child needs that. When you're a baby, especially when you're a child, you have to feel protected and taken care of. You have to feel that you are safe, even if it's an unrealistic way. That if I'm with my mommy or my daddy, I'm going to be okay. I'm taken care of rather than, yeah, there's still anything can happen and, and I can die. And this is why when your child asks you when they're very young, let's say they're four, mommy or daddy, are you going to die? Are you going to die today? Sometimes they might have fears of death. You don't need to get into a accurate philosophical discussion of, you know what? Anyone can die anytime. It could be today for me. It could be tomorrow or it could be in 50 years. You don't need to give them that type of quote-unquote realistic mindset, you need to just comfort them, and comfort them and reassure them that I will be here. I will uh, always be here. I'm going to be taking care of you. You're okay. You're safe. And so the child really is dependent on us and needs to feel like we can take care of them. But we don't necessarily lose those needs or those feelings later in life. Very often we might think we're being very mature, but we still cling to someone's um, idealization or our, our idealization of them and sometimes they're selling an idealized version of themselves and so there's in this way this good match
we're looking even unconsciously for someone to idealize to put all of our faith in to believe in and then there's people out there that want to have these followers and to have people give them that type of attention and adulation and praise and so they kind of fit together pretty well and the the wise man or woman will be able to present in a way that what you're doing is being very smart by following me because look how smart I'm talking. And then the followers can feel like I'm not being just blindly, you know, following someone. I'm very smart because look how smart he or she is talking and that symbiosis can continue. And so we see it happening time and time again. But if you see someone who's claiming to be wise, but they don't regularly say, I don't know, or they don't also tell you things that they don't quite understand, or if everything they say seems too black and white and too clear, again, we don't like uncertainty, so there's something comforting, but we have to really ask ourselves, what are they telling us? Are they telling us their opinion, but putting in, in the gift wrapping of truth and authority? And if that's the case, then maybe they're trying to sell me themselves more than they're actually trying to share information from that good intention of I just want to share something with others because there's something important to share that I think will be helpful to them. And these things become very gray because even myself, I would be lying to myself if I thought I didn't like if people, more people, let's say, listen to me and listen to my show. Of course, I would like that and I'd want that in some way. That's my goal. Hopefully, it's coming from the intention of I have good things to share that I think will be helpful for people and helpful for society. So I want more people to hear it. But I would be lying to myself if I didn't recognize a good feeling that would come from getting that. And it's always something we have to keep in check. Power of all kinds is corrupting. And of course, there's government power and we can talk about tyranny. And if you have absolute power, it corrupts absolutely. But even also when you get the attention or the power over people and how they think or what they think or entrusting your opinion, you have to be aware of that power. And I think utilize it or uh, cautiously approach how you utilize it and always keep yourself aware or in check or ask yourself, what is going on? Am I losing sight of who I am or my actual value and worth and assuming I may be better than others, that I'm no longer human in some way? Or am I keeping my intentions clear that is actually about helping other people? And I think it's a balancing act, as are so many things in life that it's not just a black and white switch that you're done forever, but you constantly have to be uh, evaluating and reevaluating, assessing and reassessing where you stand on those things. But be aware of who you are listening to, not just who you're listening to, but how you are listening to them. Are you listening to them as a follower or are you listening to them as someone who might respect and appreciate what the person is saying, but you're still using your own faculties to evaluate and you're not assuming that they might know more than they know or going along with the ride for, with them, that if they're telling me something, it has to be some kind of truth. So the wise man once said, I don't know. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Yes, hi, Dr. Farid. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I hope you have my uh, voice I'm call calling from a cell phone. Okay, uh, yeah, I can hear you quite fine. Good, very good. Uh, I, I, 
I'm not even sure if I have a question, but it's more like a comment slash question. <clears throat> uh, I, I hear you loud and cl clear, and I, I agree with everything you're saying, which uh, I don't know if it means anything, but <laughs> my, 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 my point is this. Uh, everything that you're saying, it makes perfect sense, and I, and I try to be, and I am a critical thinker, and, and I do get in a lot of arguments regarding a lot of things because... Uh, I, I use my brain and I use my mind, analyzing things logically and question things. The problem that I run into is it's trying to to logically discuss things with people that have already made up their mind. Mm -hmm. And and the the point I'm trying to make is let me just make it a little bit broader here. Religion. You, you spoke about cult, and you spoke about leaders that they stand over there, that they speak so confidently and very, very strongly, and whoever they're listening to them, they say he must know what he's talking about just the way, way he speaks. And when he gets 10 followers, and that 10 followers becomes 20, and 20 becomes 30, and becomes 100, and you call it a cult. And then what, 10, 10 100,000, and then 2 million, and 3 billion, and we call it a religion which to me it's basically the same thing at the higher uh, scale. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people would not agree with that, but uh, that's the way I think, that when you try to discuss things with religious people and try to logically argue about things, you can't get anywhere. You cannot penetrate through the, the shield that they have built around themselves, and they make it so strong that basically you cannot penetrate through that in any way or shape or form. So what I'm getting at is this. What you make sense out of, which what you're talking about, it makes perfect sense to me. The reality is it's very, very difficult to try to make sense with people that they have already got too deep in the religion and try to discuss things with them. And I get into a lot of trouble myself personally because I argue with religious people all the time. And at the end, even though you could be talking, from my perspective, correctly and everything makes sense, at the end of the day, it doesn't make a scratch <laughs> on mm -hmm. the surface for what they believe in, and it doesn't make any difference and to that. So what, what my point is, Yeah. my point is this, I, I hope people understand thinking logically and and basically using your brain rather than just following, saying the same thing that you have heard over generations, and then you just follow the same thing, and that becomes the truth with the capital T. And when they get that far, there is nothing that would change your mind. But the reason I call this this, I'll, I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. I, well, no, that's... A, a, oh, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. No, no. no, no, well, no I mean, no. I, but let me share some thoughts on that. You're right, um, especially with religion, but even... It doesn't have to just be religion. People, we think our beliefs are based on logic. And this goes for all of us. Even you and me speaking right now have to be aware of this. That we might think it's all based on logic. But usually there's a big part of emotion that comes in. Or when people make moral decisions, let's say when we talk about gun control in the United States or abortion or different really what we consider hot button topics, and they're hot button because they have a lot of emotions attached to them, people emotionally 
have a reaction that feels right or wrong. And then the logic tends to come afterwards. So they they try to explain it. And this is why I think it's interesting when you look at a lot of people debating um, big issues. It could be religious issues too or political issues. What really makes it fall apart is a few things. One is it's based more on belief and emotion than actual logic. So then they start talking about facts, but the facts are not really what got them to that place. But the other part that's even in some ways kind of more funny to me, and of course I've been there too, so I say that, is that I think people don't even know why they believe what they believe, but then they try to defend it to each other, but they don't even know why. So they're saying, no, no, the reason why is this and this and this, but they don't actually have the reasoning or the understanding down of why they believe what they believe. So, of course, it's not going to be a very fruitful discussion anyway, on top of what you said, that people don't want to change their mind. It's that the belief becomes part of ideology, but also part of identity. So to then now say, oh, you know what, I'm wrong about my religious belief. It's not just about a logical argument. It's going to attack them at their core and feel like even their sense of self is in danger. And this is why actually when we have intense political beliefs, parts of the brain can light up that you almost feel like you're being physically attacked, like your fight or flight system can in, in some ways engage. And to me, that's more about it's like your sense of self, like you are dying in that way, which of course is very scary. So you're going to defend against that at any cost. So that was just some thoughts I had, but I do, and it seems like you had a related question or a thought that you wanted to share. So go ahead. Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I mean, it's not unfortunate, but to, to me, I, I understand and all that. And, and I do believe that when, when people have gone too deep in the religion, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it, but it's, it's too late for, for us to save them, which is ironic because that's what they're trying to do to us. Uh, they, they're, they're trying to save us, but when I'm communicating with them and I'm trying to, in my point of view, I'm trying to save you to be ignorant about the reality and everything else. But from their point of view, they, they feel sorry for me because they think that they haven't been able to succeed to basically save me make sure that I'm going to have eternity life and everything else. So it's, it's an opposite, exact opposite position, and I am basically open to, to learn from them and try to understand what they're saying, and I listen to them and over and over again, and they're repeating the same thing that they have heard over the years. I'm not here to, to criticize religion. That's not my point at all, mm -hmm. but in a way I'm doing that to make my point. The, 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 it's not a dilemma that I'm in right now, but in, in a way, I'm in a situation right now that I need to talk to you to see how to approach this. Uh, as they say, it doesn't hurt until it hits home. When it hits home, when it becomes personal, it becomes uh, an issue. So, so all these years, I haven't had any issues with people that are really religious. But I have a son that he has started to go to this church, which they call him the mega churches, I guess. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those evangelical churches and stuff like that. And he's been going there for about, I think, about six months or so. And he, he started going with their friends, uh, whatever, this and that, and I found out what it was. And personally, I'm against it, but it, it's very difficult for me to approach him in a way that I don't want to be, the, uh, for him to be, become very, uh, what do you mean, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it, it's, uh, 
to, to fight me with. I don't want him to, to think that I, I don't want him to go force him not to go. And, and I will never do that. At the same time, it's very difficult for me to approach him in a way that he doesn't feel threatened by me and mm-hmm. backfire. So that's the situation. I mean, I, I spoke to him a couple of times and I told him that always keep your mind open. I'm not saying stand there and question everybody because that's not the way church works. You stand there and you listen to, to what they have to say. And if you question them, they're probably going to let it happen once or twice, and then they kick you out. And he has friends or whatever he goes with. And I don't want him to lose that sense of belonging that he has with the friends and the relationship. But at the same time, I'm completely against him being in the church and being preached to, which, mm-hmm. it, 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 I'm sorry to say, but it breaks my heart. To, to see my son standing there. I, I haven't seen him physically there, but I know how the church yeah. works. By the way, how old is he? He's uh, almost 19. He's just okay. turned 18. Yeah. He's almost 18 and a half. So it's, mm-hmm. that's the dilemma that I'm in. And at the same time, you know how it works. When uh, with the whole family, and everybody believes and so on and so forth. And if you say something, you become the black sheep. And anytime you open your mouth, everybody thinks like, oh, here it goes again. So mm-hmm. I don't want him to, to feel that I'm trying to preach to him. At the same time, I don't want him to get dragged in it too deep that, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, what's well, so, you know, and you said even this intrigue, I don't want to preach to him, um, and which is something you, I think, would be good for you to do, because you're saying you don't want him to get preached to, but if it's you or the preacher, it's the same thing if it's being preached. So we want to make sure it's not coming in that way. My... my biggest recommendation would be that rather than making it your goal to convince him which i'm sure at some level it's there it's you can't deny that that's going to be there but it's going to be about really trying to understand um where he's coming from because you know you were saying before when you know people don't want to have a crack in that armor but if they feel like it's under attack then they have to put even more armor up but if you have conversations with them where he feels like my dad you can and you, you can agree to disagree, of course. So don't say you b- believe what he's saying or agree with him. But loved ones, family members, even husband and wife can believe in, in different things, and they're not going to agree on everything. Sometimes more fundamental sure. things can be an issue. But showing him that you want to understand where he's coming from, and not to say that being religious is bad at all. I'm not going to make that claim. But we know that people go through uh, journeys where, especially in their adolescence, they do even more get connected. To to something they're searching for something to connect to and be a part of and so we can understand he's on some journey i'm not saying this is necessarily a phase but he is on a journey and we have that bigger picture view and you ask most people even if you look at your own life there might have been times where you got closer to religion or closer to some type of ideology you know sometimes people they don't go to religion because it has some association to them but then they go into some political uh, extreme kind sure. of viewpoint so that's a very common thing that ad- and happens in adolescence and of course some people mm-hmm. later in life too so I, I would make it less of a, a push and pull and more of an understanding and trying to leave a lot of agree to disagree you have to leave some space i think your fear based on what you also shared is that well if he gets too deep then he can't come out so i have to prevent him from getting too deep and that's maybe when you feel this kind of time pressure that i have to get to him really quickly before it's too late 
um, which maybe it's true, but a lot of times people can get very deep or go into a lot of places and we have to let them go through that journey. Uh, so I would say more than anything, first of all, you can't make him believe or not believe something, which I know you know, but it could be a reminder that trying to push too hard, you might push him further into it because he might even more go away from you as his father and go towards the father, as in uh, kind of the father, son, and holy ghost, especially <laughs> he's going to a church. Um, so there could be something where he'll, he'll lose you and even more will be seeking something to, uh, an authority or something to belong to. So I would make sure that it doesn't uh, have a negative impact on your relationship with him, that you don't make this the focal point of your guys' relationship, that you talk and enjoy other things together and realize that this is an area you agree to disagree. You hopefully can talk about it, of course, respectfully and not in a way to, to try to convince each other. Um, but I would focus on other areas of the relationship as well and to make sure you keep that strong because you could push him away more than save him. No, that, that, definitely, definitely we, we have a good relationship and the conversation that I had with him the the fact that he, he did not let me know that he was doing that because he already knew what my position was which was mm -hmm. okay because he has heard me uh, talking to other people and whatever so he, he knew what my position was at the same time he, he started going there with their friends and i knew about it i didn't say anything but at one point i sat down with them and i and i talked to them and i said you know what I, I said, you're an adult now, and basically I told him, it's your choice. I'm not, I can't and I won't stop you mm -hmm. from doing what you want to do. But one thing I would like to tell you is I want you to just keep an open mind and just want you to make sure that you look at things from many different perspectives and try not to be a follower and criticize every idea and I, I, I kept that communication about three months ago. And he's been going to the church, and he goes to Bible study and all that. And I know a lot of people do. Again, this is not about people. This is about the ideology and the technique that is being used to make followers of them mm -hmm. and whatever religion that is. And basically what I'm trying to teach my kid is you, you, can, you can study, you can learn for you. Don't be a follower. Even if you study the Bible day in, day out, just do it as reading a book, reading something that you want to learn to benefit you, not to become a follower of somebody else. So I've had those conversations. Okay. But my, my issue, not issue, he's only 19, and I know the worst years of between 17 to 21, 22, those are the years that they can easily enough maybe it's not the right word to say but I, I believe it manipulated by them in a way and then basically they they pull them in and it, and, and and again maybe i'm looking at it in a very extreme way i don't want him to become and it's not matter what i want i want it for him obviously i just want him to be a critical thinker and not be a follower and and i'm trying to learn the best way to communicate with him that and he tells me that he understands yeah, and I don't know. <laughs> and he and he and you know, but you know, it's interesting because you're saying I want him to think for himself, but in a way you're telling him I'm telling him to think for himself. So it's almost like you want to have that thought for him. And so you shared that with him, and he's aware of the concept, and he might 
not recognize ways that he is or isn't doing it. And we, we all go through our own process of figuring sure, things yeah. out. But, you know, there's also a judgment, it seems like you have, about religious people that it's somehow they're being duped and and you know you can have that belief and understanding but i get the sense that in a way it makes you judge your son for getting duped by these people so it's almost like i know it's for him too but it's almost like my son is not going to get tricked by these people i'm going to protect him from that or i'm going to defend him against that or, or make him wise or smart enough not to and so it's accepting and giving him that space to go through what he's going through and he's not wrong or bad uh, for doing it we want to no, let him sure. go through this and 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 you know when you say think for himself we have to give him also space to think for himself so if you tell him by the way they're manipulating you by the way they're this i'm telling you what to think about what you're going through that's different now he might come to you and want to have conversations about what's going on and hopefully you'll give him that space to disagree or have viewpoints that are different from you but you know we're, we want someone to think for themselves we have to give them that space it reminds me of a lot of families i work with and they say i want my my son or my daughter to stand up for themselves to the teacher and be really strong and then when i ask them well do they can they stand up to you and they realize they don't really give them that space to challenge them or question them and now somehow they want them magically when they're in public to then go question everyone else and stand up for themselves so we have to also give him that space to think for himself and, yeah. and uh, you know we can't tell him to think or think for him you know just just clarify one thing i, I the stuff that i'm telling you that i and I'm saying I don't want him to be manipulated and all that. I never told him all of that. Okay. I never told him that those people, they, the thing about it is, it's not about the people. There are the nicest people at the mm -hmm. church, which is the greatest thing. But however, that makes it much easier for them to fall for it. it it's sure. not about the people. I never... No, that's but that's a yeah no right no I'm and I'm it's good that you don't tell him those things but the bottom line is you feel those things and that likely will come across so it's being aware of that sure. judgment you have towards um, you know religious people or this whole organization and may and you could be right I don't know we don't have to get into that the details but so that judgment he's going to feel that and and it's there and it's not that you can completely change how you yeah. feel about that but he's going to be aware of okay dad doesn't like this dad thinks it's stupid dad thinks it's this yeah. that or the other and so you want to try to minimize that and when, when you have conversations from him it's that you want to understand because it's almost like you say i already know what's going on in your church where you want to let him tell you if he wants what's going on and what he likes and what he's getting out of it rather than already tell him again so it goes back to this i want him to think for himself but in a way you're saying yeah. i've already done the thinking for him so you have to let him go through it i can understand sure. your concern or anxiety with the process but you know as in anything whether it's a, a kid or a partner or a friend we let them go through their experience and their process and we're there with them but we're not gonna you know push them too hard in any way because usually we push them down and push them away from us but yeah. i do have to go to a commercial break but but thank you okay. for your call nice talking thank to you. you thank you for your time and thanks for the good topic thank my you. pleasure nice talking to you take care okay. Bye -bye. all right let's go to another commercial break we'll be right back Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, doctor. Are you talking to me? I am. Thanks for calling. Thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. I have a question for you regarding relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd like your input on... Um, I was referred to someone, and we first 
went to introduce through Facebook. So I went to his page just to see, you know, who I'm going to be dealing with. And he had put a post dedicating a song to his mom. And the caption read, to the only woman who has never cheated on me, who has never hurt me, who has never left me, I am dedicating this song to you. And mm-hmm. to me, that was a huge red flag. A man in his late 40s, early 50s, I think, would post such a thing. Sounded like someone who has obviously been hurt. And this person is very hard to deal with as for a woman like me. Mm-hmm. So I told my friends, I'm really sorry, even though this person, you know, the looks, da 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 you know, looks good. But to me, this is such a huge red flag that I don't even think that, you know, I should even go out with him even for a cup of coffee because I know what is down this road. So I need your feedback on this. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, well, even the way you described it, it was a little, you know, if not a red flag, a pink flag or, you know, something is going on there. It seems a little bit, there's a lot embedded in that. It's funny how sometimes one one sentence or statement can have so much in it there's yeah probably he's been hurt and a lot of times the only one who didn't cheat on me it almost sounds like plural there's been more than one woman that has cheat on him uh and to say that about his mom or to his mom even that's a little bit puzzling for me i don't know how your mom can cheat on you maybe find out thank you that was my exact point but yeah it's yeah so it's a little strange um now we don't know there could be language reasons there could be we don't know exactly what he meant so i don't know if it necessarily means for sure he can't be a good candidate but there's definitely some reddish pinkish flags there things that we might be concerned about now would you want to meet him and see you could you can do that you obviously have to make a choice attraction is something that you feel no one else can tell you that you should feel or you are attracted to someone so if you felt something there that's very important i have some concerns but i wouldn't necessarily say you would have to write him off for sure if for you it's too much of an issue or you're it feels something is wrong or off you you can make that decision but yeah i can see how there's something a little bit peculiar about um well, the, saying the point that is, yeah i have been a student of your father's for many mm-hmm. many years and you know one of my majors was in human behavior and the point is that Obviously, we know what happened between three to six and years old that where he was there. And the, when someone writes down to me, I really look for subliminal messages because mm-hmm. and when someone writes something like that, when you write, I don't know if you're familiar with the word khianat. Mm-hmm. Khianat yeah. to me, it means Infidelity. You know, a lover that has cheated on you. That's uh-huh. normally, especially when a man is writing and he says to the only woman, to me, that's speaks volumes, and knowing that obviously this person is attractive, and for me, who doesn't have a filter, and I need to be very careful who I'm going to become, as your father says, all up with, I need to be very careful and protect myself, because, you know, he can be very charming and everything, and, you know, try to hide it, or, you know, use the correct words, but deep down, this person feels like that, and it's to me, it sounds like such a um, bumpy road. At the beginning, it can be very attractive and good, but I know at the end it's going to end into disaster because I can just read his mind. 
So I was okay. just trying to tell my friends that then they were, they were just telling me that, you know what, you're just being too analytical, you're just doing too much psychology on people, you're just trying not to go out with anyone. And I told them, no, I know me, I know my, you know, what's, how I am and how I need to protect myself. Also, this speaks volumes and I don't need to waste my time or his time. Well, you know, there's some, the way you, you mentioned things like, I, I know, uh, and you're reading his mind, there's something very definitive that you're expressing that it might be too definitive. You think you know, or there's a comfort in thinking you know, or there's a comfort in getting to the conclusion that someone is wrong for you. So we would want to look at, not to say that your friends are right and you are wrong, but we want to be aware of their feedback and see, could there be something to it? Because what I'm hearing from you is there could be a protective side that you don't want to even approach something. You might be afraid to get hurt so much that you might not even start something. For now, sure. if we, so if we see someone is wrong for us, you know, we shouldn't even start something. That's true too. So I'm not saying we should always start and see what happens. Of course not. Uh, but we also want to make sure we're not closing doors before we really what we know it's on the other side, assuming we do know. So I know you said he's in his 40s. How old are you? Um, I am 55, and they said they are around the same. We are around the same age. His picture okay. looks younger. Okay. Which Pic okay. Like yeah, I picture said, looks younger. We don't know because you know yeah. people post the picture. It could be from when um, the first George exactly. Bush was president. So we don't know exactly. when the picture is from. But nonetheless, he might look young, be younger, and look younger. So and you described him as attractive. Even there's a way you talked about him, like you're like, oh, you're trying to trick me and get me, and I'm not going to let you trick me. Which could be that you're feeling attracted to him, and you're not trusting yourself that you know you don't want to get quote unquote fooled by someone. So you might be. Uh, there might be too much of an attachment you're putting on, I'm not going to let someone fool me. Now, of course, we don't want to go through a relationship with someone that might be manipulative and hurt us and heartbreak and heartache. I'm not saying you shouldn't care about that, but I almost get the sense it's like this feeling, I'm not going to let someone fool me. I'll never be someone that gets fooled. And it's one of the not, ways not we can... fool me, doctor. The thing is, okay. this, I have this... I Persian man... I mean, not just Persian men, I think, you know, American men from the South, you know, people who have the passive aggressive, I think, you know, it's called Mehtalab in, in, you know, in Farsi, but in English, I think the best translation I came to is, you know, wanting to be liked or having a passive aggressive personality, which our people have. And, okay. you know, my point was that I am not passive aggressive, and Persian men, majority of them have huge... Um, connection to their moms. They have been raised like that. And I have a guard when it comes to them, even though I yeah. like to meet someone Persian, but I have a guard towards them because I know majority, how majority of them have been raised and how their mothers have control over them. And when it comes to their mom, there is no one, there is no wrong thing she can say or do. So, so when I can I see, see how yeah. who has already plainly posted such a thing. It's like, okay, thank you very much. Have a great day. Yeah, but have a great day it makes sense. But it also seems like, like I said, you want to make sure you don't get fooled. And one of the words we, we don't get into the wrong relationship is to not to get in any relationship. So that's what I'm saying I want you to be aware of. And I do want to continue our conversation. I just have one segment left. I know there's other people on hold, but um, we only had a few minutes. And after the break, we'll talk a bit more about this because I'm not saying even your assessment about this guy is wrong or right. I don't know. But 
there's something I'm feeling from you of you might be protecting yourself too much in the sense that risking or letting yourself be vulnerable in love might be something that scares you too much and you've told yourself I'm not going to let it happen again where I get hurt but by not wanting to get hurt which is of course good we can get overprotective and let ourselves be loved and have the relationship we're also looking for so during the break I want you to think about what are you looking for as far as what do you want we'll start there and we'll continue the conversation okay you no know, I just wanted I want you to get to your other callers you answered my okay. question very We're, well and I thank you <laughs> well, for well, your time and your well I'll stop program. you there for a second let me stop you there for a second because I think you're Sorry. you're saying I answered your call thinking I agreed with you and that you were right so that maybe you can tell no, your no, friends no, no, you no, 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 no. I'll stay till the break. Yes, yes, I understand. No, that's fine. We could, if you want to, that, I do want to get to the other callers as well, if that's how it's going. But just like I said, I want you to reflect on, am I protecting myself too much? And one of the ways we can make sure we never get fooled is to make sure we never let ourselves trust someone. If I never trust anyone, no one could ever, uh, you know, prove me wrong or take advantage of me or do something. Someone has written that. I mean, I know, but, but you're making... It might, but see, that's the thing is you, it looks like you're looking to prove your own point. See how Persian men are all this way and look, it proves my point. So, you know, you're already making your conclusion and there could be evidence supporting it in this case. I'm not saying, but it seems like there's something about proving that you were right about this that feels very important that I'm feeling from you that the being right might be a little bit more important than really seeing what's fully there and that it's not just about him he maybe you never go out with him but to look at am I trying to protect myself too much and writing people off too quickly because I quote unquote already know them and have read their mind and not giving the space to see what happens which yeah you could get hurt they could be fooling you they could do this that or the other but giving that space to let it happen rather than what you're telling me is I'm gonna date them in my mind and run a simulation and if it's good I go forward if it's not I end it and almost always you could find some way that it can go wrong and then you don't go forward so just some things to think about but but thanks thank for calling you. good luck good luck to you Doctor, nice talking thank to you. you very much for your time have a wonderful my, day my pleasure take care thank right, you let's bye -bye. go to Bye-bye. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hey, how are you? Hi, thanks for calling. Hi. Um, I had a couple of questions about um, like OCD tendencies I struggle with. Um, okay. A little background. I'm 23, um, and I was in therapy from like 14 to... I guess 19 is when I stopped really going regularly or like anything intensive for uh, mm -hmm. like body dysmorphia, eating disorder sort of things. I um, struggled with bulimia in high school and um, I recovered from that, you know, over time. Mm. Um, and I noticed um, I do like um, go and start the habit, I guess, of obsessing over different things, though, um, in a sort of, like, addictive way, um, and it really, like, becomes paralyzing sometimes, and I guess in the last um, two or three years, it's been more uh, noticeable in, like, more interpersonal relationships or romantic relationships. And, um, like, the most recent example is um, I've been dating this guy for about three months, three, four months now, and just everything is just so wonderful um, that I became obsessed with this idea um, that he, like, still has feelings for his ex. 
which ended like over half a year ago and I didn't even like have real proof for it um and like I just would find myself obsessively like asking my mom or like my friends and like telling them like details about everything and like asking her reassurance about it like do you think he still like thinks about her as he like this is somebody he's not even like in contact with you know because mm -hmm. um, I talked to him about it and it's, it was just like becoming damaged I guess for like three months, almost every other time I and I would bring it up. And um, finally we had like a sort of spat about it and he was like, you know, this is like really damaging to us. I, um, you know, and I just, and then after like the on spot, like the fear just disappeared because I just kind of had a reality check. By the way, sorry, I'm, it's hard to hear. I don't know if you can hear me. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're, it's kind of hard to hear you. I don't know if you're on speakerphone. Um, it's a little bit hard to make out what you're saying and some sounds are coming in. No, it's okay. Can you hear me clearly right now? It's quiet right now. I can barely hear you, actually. Maybe let me try speaking up. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, it's, it's, but I heard you say that you had a, a, a fight with him and brought it up, and he said it's um, it's hurting the relationship. And he's probably right. And it's interesting because right now the way you're talking about it, you have an awareness that it's not something you need to worry about. But what's hard about these kinds of obsessions is that when you're in them, it feels very real. And it's hard to just tell yourself, oh, you know what, I'm just obsessing over something that's nothing. Um, and then you seek reassurances, which unfortunately in the moment give you a relief, but almost reinforces this cycle and this pattern that you are in. So what's good is you have some awareness and you've shown obviously great resilience that you were able to overcome bulimia, which is very challenging, uh, but also is related to anxiety and control and things like OCD. So we see that, as is often the case, we might um, disrupt some way that's really harming us with whatever we're dealing with, which is good, but it doesn't mean those tendencies go away or disappear, and they likely never will completely. My, my guess would be that you would have anxiety your whole life at some level. Yeah. Now, can it yeah. be much more manageable, and can you make it interfere with your personal and interpersonal life? Definitely, you can make huge strides in that direction, but it's probably going to be part of you. Um, I would recommend when it comes to therapy, I'm glad you went, and it seems to have been helpful, is that to seek someone out who has expertise in OCD, because um, obviously in any issue we're dealing with, we want to go to someone who has experience and specializes in treating that. But a lot of issues, depression and most anxiety and different things, most therapists can do quite well with that. But OCD, it almost requires a certain type of therapy that is almost counterintuitive to some therapy because just exploring the issues as can be helpful in most therapy with something like OCD, it actually can even make it worse if not not really help at all. Exactly. And so you need someone who has that um, that kind of experience. So in Los Angeles, I know someone really good. I don't know what area you're living in that I could recommend. Of course, right now, most therapists like myself are doing telehealth, so you maybe could contact her anyway. Uh, but I would highly recommend going to someone who really specializes in that because the therapy might it might not help and even worse than that it could hurt in some ways if they don't exactly. have familiarity with OCD and how to treat it right like um, like CBT and um, those types of therapies mm -hmm. I noticed mm -hmm. made it worse so I tried doing exercises on my own like exposure as I guess and like writing down fears and 
that like calms me down like nothing else I guess but even that is like hard because it's like I find a new thing and like ever since we had that thought which was like three weeks ago and even after he like reacted that way he told me he was like you know I know you're not doing it on purpose and not like you got a malice you know and um, I know you're trying your best and even he apologized for it but still now I am fixated on like the idea that like oh my god like it has it has a view of me you know what I mean it's like a new yeah. thing now and it's like now I find myself really thinking about it and being occupied with like um thoughts of like okay now does he you know love me less you know or I don't mm. know um yeah. and like it kind of ties in with, um, I guess, quote-unquote, like, codependency, like, codependent tendency that I've noticed I had had um, before another relationship. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's like these two um, together, it can be very crumbling almost. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, yeah. and they're related too. And sorry, I'm still unfortunately having a little bit of a hard time hearing you but um i'll just share some thoughts here it's okay and we have a few minutes left anyway i'll say a few things and definitely want to give you a chance to to say what you uh, wanted to say now but um yeah they're obviously related that kind of codependency or being so anxious you're going to be so preoccupied like you're seeing with this boyfriend that does he like me does he like someone else does he want someone else so you're going to constantly be Mm -hmm. seeking that reassurance that he likes you and of course that's going to mean you're going to want to be closer to him hear from him constantly you know have that kind of constant connection which um it, it, it in the moment will reassure you but then there isn't this stable and secure feeling that you have his love that you have him and so you're you're constantly wanting that and unfortunately that'll be of course exhausting for you too even when you're talking about it i can feel it in what you're saying then how almost like torture it could be to just have these constant thoughts in your mind but even on your your partner and the relationship it can have a toxic effect over time because you can't really even enjoy your time together because it's almost regularly going to be about reassuring you that everything's okay. And, and it's tough because he, it's good that he's aware that you're not trying to. It's in, it's out of your control to a degree, which I'm glad he's understanding in that way. But still, it doesn't mean that it wouldn't negatively impact to the point where the relationship would, would not be able to stay stable anymore. Um, so I would recommend getting into the you know therapy specifically focusing on this because what you're doing is what most people do is to seek that reassurance but eventually like you said with exposure what you do is you face the fear and see that what you're scared of isn't actually going to happen like for example if you don't talk to him or get that reassurance things will fall apart Um, or for example someone who has OCD with germs that if they don't clean like you know nothing bad happens Uh, you have to face those fears it's really unfortunately the only way we get over a fear is we have to face it and see that things are okay but that's obviously very hard and oftentimes can be helped with a therapist i know you're trying them on your own which is very noble and great and i hope it's helpful but it's likely to be even more helpful with a therapist to guide you and to do it systematically and and get to those results but again we have like maybe two minutes left so i want to give you a chance if there's something else you wanted to add okay and um do you think um if i struggled with codependency and codependent tendencies do you think that would be help in the same type of therapy well it could be and you know i I don't want to say 
I get what you were saying about codependency um, and codependency. You know, there's a, it seems almost like dependency. Like you feel very dependent on the person and you want a type of relationship that is constantly connected and being close because yeah. of that anxiety. So I think it might be related to this feeling, you know, also you probably, if you haven't already, you can look at attachment theory and clearly you have a very severely anxious attachment style. And so you're constantly seeking that reassurance and you don't have that secure, stable feeling with a partner or with um, an attachment figure. So that might be, uh, might give you some insight too into yourself, but it probably won't change as much as I think the therapy looking at the OCD will help. I definitely don't like recommending medication as a first line defense but it's something to be aware of that it can help in some ways for some people that it's just hard for their their brain to shut some of these obsessions off and it can be helpful so it's something definitely to explore with everything we look at the pros and the cons the potential benefits and the side effects and it might be worth it for you to take medication that in a low dose that uh, can have a at least a positive impact in making the obsessions a little bit less. You know, obsessions are kind of like you, you you see a movie at the theater and they change the reels. For some people, when they have OCD, the reel never changes. It just keeps playing the same reel over and over again, and they can't right. switch the reel, unfortunately, and they get stuck. And it can be very, you know, very disheartening and um, very tough for the person going through it. I'm, I'm glad your boyfriend is understanding of that, but it's likely that it's going to have a toxic effect over time if it keeps pursuing in this way. And it's tough because it has this self-fulfilling prophecy. You're like, oh, is he going to now love me less because I've created the stress, but that itself might make him love you less or make the relationship get more um, stressful and toxic. So then it might actually end up fulfilling that prophecy as anxiety oftentimes does. Unfortunately, I do have to wrap up. I wish we had more time to talk. I appreciate you calling. I hope uh, you, you can get some of the help that you deserve to, to help you in that regards. Your awareness is good. You have a lot of self-awareness, but it's not enough. You're going to need that help as well. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. Nice talking to you. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. Thank you to all the callers and listeners. And of course, thank you to Ghazala in the studio for allowing me to do the show remotely. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful day.